and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I'm your host, Erica Behel, and I invite you to join me on a transformative journey to uncover the extraordinary potential that lies within every single moment of our lives. From the choices we make in our relationships, careers, and personal growth, to the mindset we embrace in the face of adversity, this podcast will empower you to embrace the notion that every moment holds a choice, and it's up to us to seize it. Join me as we engage in insightful conversations with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have harnessed the power of choice to achieve greatness, overcome obstacles, and create extraordinary lives. If you feel inspired by this episode, please read it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Hello. My guest today is James Tu, award-winning screenwriter, author of Palooka, 12 Rounds to Fatherhood, and one-time pro boxer. He recently wrote, directed, and staged his play, Trouble Came, to sold-out shows here in Singapore. Shortly after his show wrapped, James had this to say about it. I quote, I worked my ass off for four months on Trouble Came. I put on a production with no institutional support. I sold my sneaker collection to raise the money. I cast only my friends. I hired only crew that had zero professional experience and we still pulled it off. But I personally think it is much, much more important to look at the things I didn't do. Even though I wrote and directed and was a producer and did the set and did sound design and art direction, I didn't miss a single Friday date night with my wife. I didn't miss a morning taking my kids to school. I didn't get less than seven cumulative hours of sleep every 24 hours. I didn't stop picking my kids up from school. I didn't sacrifice a single Saturday with my family. Over the last two weeks alone, my wife and I rewatched two seasons of The O.C. together. I didn't stop training jiu-jitsu every day, Monday to Friday. I didn't yell at anybody in the cast or crew. I didn't pressure anybody in any way. I didn't say no when my wife said she had a miracle reservation at FICO the exact same time as our final rehearsal before moving into the venue for the media show. I really worked my ass off on this production truly. And you need to be prepared to as well. But you also need to remember this. It's just a play. Some people are going to violently disagree with this, and that's cool. But if you ask me, it's just a fucking play. It's important and the easiest thing in the world to romanticize. But it's nowhere near as important as your health or your family, your friends, how you treat people. It's just art, man. Don't contribute to the pernicious sentiment that conflates hard work with compromising your health or happiness or someone else's. Be a good person. Bring positivity to the process. Respect people. It's just a fucking play. Don't take from this the lesson that you can do anything you want to. Take the lesson that you can do anything you want to without killing yourself or those around you to do so. Trouble Came was a piece about mental health. On the stage and before we even got to it end quote. Wow. Welcome, James. Hi, Erica. Thanks for having me. Powerful stuff. Let's get into it. Sure. So it's just art, right? Mm -hmm. An intriguing statement from someone who admittedly worked his ass off for four months to bring his writing to stage. So what compelled you to write this? What compelled you to have to clarify this? Uh, the the post? The, yeah. Um, I mean, it's obviously not to denigrate art, which is I think extremely important, um, extremely important to me. 
and and to you know millions of other people out there but i think it's more there's a particular line in what i wrote which was that it's the easiest thing in the world to romanticize i think i think that's the the really important part that i felt like i needed to say something because i think that um it's very easy when you're making the thing to think that the thing's really really important and and so important that it's worth damage i guess and trauma if we think about who the kind of people that become directors or are put in these positions there's always kind of a, a minimum requirement of skill or expertise or knowledge but there's almost never a minimum requirement of character or um patience or anything like that and a lot of the time the people that are put in these positions are not necessarily adequately adept at um taking care of people and the people that are in the productions because they're so enamored with the process and and they make the art this huge thing feel like it's necessary for them to do whatever it takes and I've been on productions I've I've been in plays and in in rehearsal spaces where I feel like I have seen directors kind of take advantage of that power and it was very important to me that I didn't do that and and so that was always kind of top of mind for me in the process that everybody be taken care of and everybody have a good time and just a positive experience working on the thing and and then as soon as it was over it was important for me to be able to say yes it is possible especially because like when you're making something regardless of how small it is when it's art it's very easy like i said to romanticize and so i think everybody in the back of their mind often kind of buys into the notion that maybe they're making citizen kane and and nobody ever thinks they're you know making transformers or something like that but <laughs> the reality is you're probably not even making transformers the, the thing that i made trouble came we sold out and so like 500 people came to see it you know maybe half of them were still thinking about it the next day by today they're probably not thinking about it at all and so the cost of the trauma for that is um i really don't think it's worth it i think the maybe the counter to what i'm saying the people that would violently oppose the notion would be you know if you spoke to stanley kubrick and he'd say that if he hadn't abused the cast on the shining then then maybe um maybe we wouldn't have that and maybe maybe the horror genre itself or maybe Stephen King's adaptations maybe all those things would never happen and we wouldn't have art that we have today and you know maybe 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 he's right i don't know you know i guess the counter to that argument is that Orson Welles felt the other way which was that he cast his friends and and he he spoke often about how um he had made mistakes with casting but that he would do it again because to him loyalty to art was not a worthwhile loyalty loyalty to people was more important and um and he did make citizen king so i feel like it's um a fairly solid position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. So you're clarifying, you know, how you made it was just as important as what you made. And you mentioned that trouble came was about mental health. What did you want people to take away from it? Two things, I guess. I mean, the obvious one is um the Shakespeare like in Hamlet he writes uh, the play is the thing that will catch the conscience of the king, right? So it's the this is the thing that's going to get the people they don't know that they're there to learn something the plays the thing that's going to kind of open them up and without them even realizing that they're being encouraged to think about something like this condition then that's hopefully something that they take away at least i'm not trying to make a a value judgment over how you should treat people with any kind of mental health condition but just at least to think more openly and and more um understandingly about it and then the second thing is just um to think that i've fucking did it. I wanted to do it and I did it. You know, it was it was um at the time I was on holiday with my family. We were in Europe and I just uh had written this film that we were in pre-production for and then the lead actress she got another job and so 
I wanted to wait for her to be able to do the show. So I said, okay, go and do that because it was paying more than I could pay. And I didn't want to just do nothing. So I just made the decision to do this play, wrote this play. And then um, four months later, we staged it. And, and it was, you know, by most metrics, a pretty strong success. We actually turned a profit, which is pretty rare. And in, in, in Well, okay, to be totally fair, uh, we would have turned a profit, but maybe like a week before we opened, I kind of made a decision to reinvest a little bit of the money in the future of independent theater, I guess. And so we hired people to record the show and to do some kind of behind the scenes documentary work to just just for kind of archival purposes mm -hmm. and so with that cost maybe we we broke even but either way you know just we wanted to do a show or i wanted to do a show and maybe cast and crew all together was probably like 18 people maybe something like that none of us had ever done it well i mean the actors have been in some theater but none of the people who actually made it happen the logistics and the admin stuff had ever done any theater and so and we just did it so so i i hope that people can take that lesson that you know if you're if you're sufficiently passionate and willing to work hard then then you you can do that too you know because i think that's something that's not as prevalent here as it is in other parts of the country because the perceived barrier for entries is pretty high yeah and i mean you're saying there there was a documentary made of it so maybe more people will get to see about what Trouble Came was about. But if you were to synopsize, if that's a word, sure. synopsize it, uh, what was the the plot about for our listeners? The plot was, it was a girl named Julia who was an actress and she was um, quite seriously depressed. And um, her boyfriend had dumped her for um, for being a drag. And so she runs away to her sister's house, moves in with her sister and her sister's husband, who are both kind of aggressively happy people. Who don't really believe that depression aggressively is aggressively happy, <laughs> yeah, uh, aggressively and condescendingly happy, and and don't really b believe that depression is a thing. And um, it's kind of based on this old story about Hemingway that I don't I don't think it's actually true. But the story was that he, in learning to write, he would he would take out a typewriter and he would write Shakespeare by hand, the you know the full works. By doing that, he would learn what it felt like to be a genius, and then he would write his own work with that feeling. And so she endeavors to do the same thing with them where she's like okay i'm just going to act like these people in their day-to-day -day life and in the process of doing so I'll, I'll, I'll learn why they're happy and then i'll, I'll take that and, and then i'll be happy and so so she just does that and it's kind of um you know like when somebody no matter how cool you think you are if somebody holds a mirror up to you and and, and you see what they think you are and it's <laughs> it's not as cool as you think and so she becomes happier and they become less happy and, and um and that's kind of the, the opening conceit very cool so this was your first time like I mentioned, like you, you said, even in your post, I sold my sneaker collection. You had to kind of produce this whole thing yourself. And this was the first time that you've actually staged one of your own works and fully you directed it. You kind of produced it. You did a lot of it. So it was kind of like a really driven endeavor for you. What made you feel like, I mean, you'd mentioned the timing aspect of why, why this felt right at this time, but what kind of drove you to bring it to the stage yourself? I, I didn't want to have to um, compromise creatively. It was important to me that if the show is good, it's because of me and it's all my decisions. But if the show is bad also, those are my decisions and I want to live by the sword or die by the sword, you know. And and I'm kind of at an inflection point, I think, in my career where um, if I kind of, I don't think the word is necessarily apt, but resign myself to just being a writer, that forces me to be in a way beholden to the industry forces because they're the ones who are going to decide if they buy my script they're the ones who are going to decide if they make it and um 
I don't think that's a great place to be. So I'd always been content with that because the arrangement worked fine for me. I had a good age and, and I had, um, I could, I could go like that, but now I have kids and the responsibilities there to be, you know, all I can be. And so, so I feel much more energized to, to really kind of push the envelope and see, could I do more than that? And I did feel like maybe I could be a good director and, um, I wanted to know how far could I push it? And even though that seems like a kind of a leap to go from just writing to then directing and producing and, and all the stuff that I did, that's not actually the end of the story. Like I, I want to go further into film and, and this is just, um, the first kind of step on that ladder. So, so that, that's the reason why I, I needed to see if I could actually do the things that I wanted to do. Cause uh, if, if I, I would find out pretty quickly if I couldn't, and that would be freeing to disappointing, but, but also freeing. I think, you know, lusting after a dream that's not really within your reach is, is also kind of dangerous. And so I wanted to be disavowed of that notion. <laughs> and instead you sold out shows. Yeah. Yeah. It was, we were fortunate. Yeah. A lot of people supported. So it was good. That's amazing. So for the listeners, I was chuckling a little bit when you were talking about, you know, wanting to have that control, I guess that creative control and, and everything, because James has run workshops for young writers in the past, and he has kind of mentored writers writing their first screenplay. And I remember I attempted mine. And one of the things I remember you saying to us was like, that's the director's job. Stop putting in all the, all the detail, all these kind of notes saying you want it this way and this way, because that's a director's job. Like you're the, you're the writer. <laughs> I remember you saying that. But now it seems like you also, at least in this case, did something that you felt you wanted control over as well. That's why I was chuckling. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I still feel that way. The control that I was actually referring to was more... Um, I mean, I think you see, you figure out about people what they, what they prioritize when it comes to story, you know, like, you know, David Finch is famous for prioritizing information. For me, the control I was actually talking about was rhythm. It's very difficult to assess the merit of dialogue if the rhythm that it's delivered in is completely contrary to what it was intended to be. Mm. And I think, um, you know, to varying results, because I've only ever been a writer before, I've seen it done numerous ways. And I have always had a very specific rhythm in mind and a very specific kind of metronome for, for the, you know, there's a piece of dialogue at, at the end of this, of Trouble Came and we were in a rehearsal fairly late on and, and I was having a conversation with my stage manager and I could hear the actors rehearsing behind me and um, one of the girls uh, said her line and I, and, and I knew it was wrong. And I said, that's wrong. Can you look at the script, please? And, and I heard her say... Um, well, James knows every line in the script. And it, it, I didn't know what the line was. I just knew that it was wrong because it was the wrong number of syllables. Yeah. And the, the rhythm of the line was was wrong. That's just really important to me that the rhythm is, is correct. And, and I think um, that affects comedic timing. It affects if, <sighs> everything. The rhythm. It's just the rhythm. The, 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 <laughs> the color of the table. I didn't give a shit if there was condiments there, what the fridge looked like. I couldn't care less. I'm colorblind. I had to do all the, the lighting stuff. I had to paint the set. I bought one tub of paint. It was white. And then we had to get a blue. And I, I couldn't care less about this stuff. But the rhythm of the, of, the, of the show was really important to me. Understood. Understood. So you, you talked about the technical craft of writing and kind of the, the flow of the play and everything. And the subject matter, I mean, you're talking about in this synopsis, envy, perhaps, you know, the, the grass is greener or the, the effect of things like social media and viewing everyone else's lives as perfect and comparisons, I guess. So what, 
what made you want to write about this now? Because I mean, social media is just the latest manifestation, but hasn't there always been a kind of comparing yourselves to other people? I mean, was it the social media aspect or was it the more personal aspect? No, that's absolutely true. It has always been a thing. Um, I think it's, uh, there's a, an old Faulkner quote where he said that memory knows before knowing remembers. And I, I think like the, the difference between now and then is that there was so much other stuff and you could see something that you envied or, or that you lacked and then you go home and then you f- forget about it. And, and whereas now social media is, is, you know, arguably the world's number one pastime and um, it's just there constantly in your face. And this is something that I was saying to my dad fairly recently because when we grew up, we were really poor and then he got this job. And, and when I was like 10, we moved to Malaysia and we suddenly had like a little bit of money and and he was he was telling me how fortunate I should feel that that he got that job, and I and I was explaining to I mean I was fortunate and I am still fortunate, but I was explaining to him that I never felt as poor as I did then before because when we were really poor, everyone was really poor. Mm-hmm. So um, we were just and and you would see stuff that you knew you could never have, and but that was nobody could have it. It was yeah. ridiculous. It was like yeah. richy rich shit. But then when we moved to Malaysia, we had a little bit of money. We went to. Um, international school and international school in malaysia is populated only by rich kids and so then all of a sudden everyone had everything and i had nothing and it's that that ever presentness of of the the envy that i think is so you know when you watch a movie and and if you if you see the severed head it's not that scary because when the movie's over you go home and and you just never think about it again but if you see the severed head and then every time you turn on your phone you see the severed head again and i think it's just it's the it's the reinforcement of it and the constant reminder and it's it has this push and pull because you you want to open Instagram because there's interesting stuff there, but it's also the stuff that hurts you. And, and it's, I just think it's more difficult to avoid now and more easily welcome. Like, you know, I'm, I'm saying that the play is the thing that'll catch the conscience of the king. The Instagram is that too. It's disarming you, thinking you're going there for something positive, but it's actually giving you that too. And I mean, there are positives to it too, but you're opening up yourself to, to that constantly. And so I think it's more the repeated bludgeoning of it than that it's a new thing. I don't think, I agree it's not a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So um, when you talk about the subject matter here, right, you feel strongly about it. And if you go through, because you've written a lot, you know, you've, you're an author of a book, you've written plays, you've written screenplays. So you've explored not only mental health, but some other interesting and edgy subjects in your writing through many different viewpoints. So what, what was Jugular Vein about? Women kind of comparing? Was it also a comparison? Um, it was about four women at a bachelorette party um, that kind of devolves into a cat fight. It was kind of um, a modern bitchy version of um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it was That was a different process in the sense that it was devised. We had four women and it was kind of pitched to me as... Uh, we have these four actresses who are really good and really passionate and um, for whatever reasons are not getting the opportunities that we feel they deserve. So let's write something for them. And that was what that became. In terms of the subject material, to be honest, all I wanted to do was to A, give them opportunity and B, to write something that was, um, I guess, would normally be kind of masculine and, and let them say things that they weren't usually able to say as women on stage, especially in, in places like Singapore and, and let them swear at each other. And, and I mean, I can't remember exactly the dialogue, but some of it got pretty colorful and just like, mm-hmm. just give them an opportunity to play the kind of roles that only usually men get to play. 
Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. You've written from the female perspective a few times, in fact. And is there another screenplay or a script that you've written around a woman who is going deaf? Yeah, so that was the the film that I was in pre-production for um, okay. that collapsed. Um, right. And so we did the play instead, which was um, it's called Queen of Limbs, which is uh, about a girl. She's a, a ballet dancer who's going deaf. Oh, it's been a while now. I forget the name of the condition, but she has a degenerative um, hearing condition. Mm. And um, just kind of her dealing with that, because that kind of was born from um, similar to Jugular in, in the sense that it was somebody that I wanted to write for. Because so is this girl Tess Pang, who's who's an actress here, and you know a, re- a really close friend of mine, and I think she's a really wonderful actress and and also a wonderful dancer, and it was an opportunity to let her demonstrate her shit, I guess, in a way that she wasn't really getting opportunity to, and um, it was just at the same time I had watched Sound of Metal, which was a Riz Ahmed film, and it was a really good film, but the film is about a, a drummer who's going deaf and um the way that the the subject is dealt with is the opposite of the way that i like to deal with subjects which is not say that they're wrong maybe i'm wrong but it's just from a personal preference thing you know when i was growing up we didn't have any money and and you know growing up asian my dad had this thing my dad's whole thing when i was a kid was white people are lazy uh my dad's chinese white people lazy so (laughs) my thing is i'm gonna only live in places where there are no Asian people, because then I can be the most hardworking person they've ever seen. And that's how I will succeed in life. So we just moved from blue collar town to blue collar town. And what it means if there's no Asian people there is that these people have never seen Asian people either. So if someone's going to get the shit kicked out of them, it's going to be me. So I never had any friends. And that kind of um, manifested, I guess, this interest in people that only exist on the margins and... um, don't necessarily get the mainstream support, I guess. And so, so in Son of Metal, he, he, he loses his hearing and then he finds a community who support him and, and work through his condition, which is really cool. But what I wanted to explore was what if the opposite was true? What if you got no support? What if you were on the outside of the situation right. and, and you had to deal with that yourself and, and to look at it from that perspective. And so, yeah, that's, that's what that story was about. It's really interesting to me that you, you're talking about, you know, it wasn't kind of a story that, that you had in mind and it didn't really matter who played it. You are deliberately, at least in some cases, you know, a person, do they almost serve as like a muse to write for? Yeah. Some, sometimes. Yeah. I, I guess the truth is that I think in my heart that I'm really good at writing, I guess. (laughs) And, um, more, (laughs) I think the world agrees. So it's it's okay. I really believe that that I can execute on any idea to a, to a, a decent level, and so um, rather than kind of um, selfishly kind of plow these 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 directions um, on my own, it's like with trouble. Like the reason why I cast only people that I knew. We didn't hold any auditions, and the lead actor, this guy Stephen, was one of my students at the time, and he was. Um, He's an older guy. He's a white guy in Singapore. And, and he was an actor first and he came to Singapore and, and then developed an interest in acting. But either the time had passed him by or, or whatever it was, just being the demographic he was, he just wasn't getting any work. And, and he would always come to class early and he, would, um, he wouldn't bitch about it, but he would mention he was getting <laughs> frustrated. And, and so when it came to you know, do my own play, it was, he was one of the first calls that I made because I wanted to give him an opportunity. And it's the thing where like, 
because the, the cast, there was one day before one of the shows, the cast were talking about how theater works in Singapore. And a lot of them were saying that theater companies, the, the, the notion was that theater companies cast the same people. They have their preferred cast. And, but then it was understandable in the sense that it's because they've just, they have a working relationship. They know they can trust these people and it's just not worth the hassle and all that kind of stuff, which made sense. And, and somebody said, you know, like the same what you're doing, James, with, with your thing. But that's not at all um, what I was doing. What I was doing was because I believe in myself, I believe that anything that I do will be at least good. And I don't want strangers to reap the benefit of my goodness. I would rather my friends or people that I, I, I care about or, or want to give opportunities to. And so I'd rather we all come along and enjoy the fruit of, of the work rather than random people that I don't know. So so that's, I guess that's what that's about. And I, and I feel like, I don't know, man, I just get touched by people who are, who are, I don't know, somebody made fun of me for always supporting underdogs but I, I i think i do you know it's just um and in the arts in singapore there are a lot of underdogs mm. so i think it's best actually that i don't i kind of minimize my circle and so i don't keep collecting new underdogs and just you know <laughs> stick to the ones that i have yeah. you'd have a whole queue of underdogs waiting at your door being like just make a film about me yeah. <laughs> i'm ready so you're talking about underdogs from what you shared about your own childhood did you feel like an underdog um I never really thought about it, I guess. I mean, I mean, I must have. I, I think, like, how I got my break, I guess, in, in the industry was um, I was at university and uh, I applied for a writer's job at this film website called joblow.com, which was, it was like a long time ago. It was maybe like, tw- well, it must be 20 years ago before blogs or anything like that. And so there were only like three or four film websites. And at the time, the readership was like 600,000 people a day or something like that. You know, somehow I got that job um, and I was doing it, but I was doing it. So how film journalism worked then, probably still now, to be honest, is that those websites don't have journalists. The only people who have journalists are Hollywood Reporter and Variety. And what the websites do is what your job is, is when you're on staff, if a story breaks, you steal that story and then repurpose it uh, for your own website. That's how the industry works. I, I assume it still works like that now. Yeah. And so that was my job, uh, was to take news. And then our the website, Joblo, was like, it was positioned in the market as like, I think it was like the frat bro of film websites. Mm-hmm. And so I had to kind of develop this kind of frat bro uh, persona when I was reporting the news and trying to be funny and lust over the actresses and, and stuff like that. And so that that's how I started. But when I was doing that, I lived in a tiny town in England and just like the furthest thing from Hollywood, you know, and, and I, I must have felt that way, but I... I don't know. I, I never. I never. I don't remember ever actually kind of um, ever kind of stewing on that or anything like that. It was all. It was all just exciting. It was like the magic of film. And I think because film kind of it came to me kind of late, I guess. And it's it's like it's really hard when like the only exposure you have to film is your dad, who's like Bloodsport is the greatest <laughs> movie of all time, um, and then <laughs> to at eighteen realize actually you're really interested in film and try to watch or even like you try to watch Death of a Salesman and you're like cool i wonder what he dies of like ninjas and it's just like it's so difficult to and so so that whole world was just um i don't know it was just so exciting and i never i never remember ever feeling like i was an underdog i remember feeling like frustrated obviously at times but and then even then when i i finally kind of got my break as a writer of scripts i was in malaysia at the time and just really far just really far from hollywood but i think i was always i always felt lucky actually as a kid i always felt pretty Mm -hmm. lucky yeah, I always felt, I don't know, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like the like I used all my luck as a, as a child, um, and then now I have none. I, I do very 
vividly remember feeling very blessed when I was a kid and, and never feeling like I was an underdog. Mm. I think also I, I was very quick to identify that I was not good at something and then just not do that thing anymore and just go find something else. And, and I remember I remember when I was in high school, no, not high school, primary school, like on sports day, I remember there was the sprint, there was egg and spoon race and there was the skipping race. That was three. And obviously everyone wants to be good at the sprint. I was not good at the sprint. Nobody wants to be good at the skipping race. So I decided I'm going to be the fastest at skipping. And so I just went and won that. I was very good at like being like, no, 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 that's you. <laughs> I'll, I'll be that thing. Um, in, in primary school as well, like everyone wanted to be on the football team. I was not good at football. So I was like, I'm going to be basketball. That's my thing. And it was England that we played basketball. So it was very easy to be like, that's my thing. And yeah. so um, it was just a hero in my own world, I guess. Oh. <laughs> So when, when did you find out that you were good at writing? Like when, when did writing enter the picture? Uh, to be honest, I always wanted to be a writer. Even when I was, even this, this same time, my, my Egg and Spoon Race time, I, I was still, I, I really, really loved writing. I think that's another thing that's born of poverty, I think, is creativity. <laughs> just had so many books and, and, I, and I always like to learn. I think I always like to read. And when you don't have friends, reading is often the only refuge that you have. And so I was, I was always a, pretty voracious reader. My, my parents were both big readers. And um, I, I mean, I, okay, so I didn't, I didn't know I was good then, but, but I was always very passionate about it. I, I guess I, I guess I didn't know that I was good until maybe towards the end of high school. When I was in high school, I wanted to be an academic. I wanted, to, I wanted to be uh, a historian. And, and so I went to university to study history, uh, Russian history. And the goal was to go and learn Russian and go and get a PhD in Russian history. Mm -hmm. That was when I, kind of figured out I guess or started to think that maybe I could be good at writing because all I wanted to do was just write about the Russian Revolution and um and I felt like I had really interesting things to say which I definitely did not but at the time I did and and um and and then that was around the time when I applied for Joe Blow and I guess that was you know things just kind of crystallized for me but even then I don't think I was good then like looking back I sucked actually mm -hmm. um but I think what I did have was um I was definitely derivative and I had no original thoughts but I, I had, I guess, at least an innate kind of understanding of structure of, of how, to, how to tell a story, I guess. And I had a voice. I think the reason why I got that job that I applied for was not because I was a great writer. It was because I didn't try to hide my uniqueness of voice. And, and so um, that was what was important, I think. And I think, um, you know, Salman Rushdie was always talking about what he thinks that everything when it comes to being a good writer can be taught except for an ear for language uh, or a voice. And, and I think that's what I had. And, and maybe a lot of other people that applied for the job had it too, but they felt the need to maybe quieten it and, and kind of um, conform a little bit because it was, it was still paid professional journalism. But for me, I didn't give a shit about that. I just wanted it to be me. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe that's, that was the beginning, I guess. Right. So then how did that transition into things like screenwriting? So I would, re I would re report on the news and um, one day I got an email from this guy who was working for Doug Lyman, who was a film director who made um, The Born Identity and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And, and he had been working on this film called Jumper, which was this Hayden Christensen thing where he can like teleport and rob banks and stuff. And the email said that something that I had written had helped them get extra time to reshoot. He wanted, he wanted to reshoot and the studio gave them the time because of something that I'd written. And he wanted to show appreciation. And that was, that was kind of um, how I got that 
in and then um i guess the voice that i was writing in was appealing and then just um kind of got sucked into you know doing rewrites and and helping doctor scripts like that just because of the voice that i was at that point i was really settled in my voice and it was really like um, like if you're writing for 600,000 people a day six or seven articles a day and most of the people who read that site want your job and think they should have your job you are forced to kind of refine your style pretty quickly mm. and so at that time i was really settled in who i was um as a voice and not at all intellectual it was mostly um sarcastic mostly lusty <laughs> um <laughs> I could be quite biting, I think. There were, there were certain directors that I really didn't like. Like, I, I had this ongoing feud with Eli Roth, who eventually was responsible for me being fired from the website. Um, <laughs> because he, the, the, at this time, he was just like, every day there would be a new project. Oh, Eli Roth's going to direct this. And it was like, come on, dude. Like, he was every day I had to report. And, and it's so tiring. It's so difficult to come up with six new jokes a day as it is. Six new jokes about Eli Roth every day. It was just exhausting. And so at some point I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I just started making up stories. And I was just like, you know, I, you know, a source told me that he was dealing drugs to kids. And I definitely saw him like flying kick a nun off a bus or something like that. And I was just like, oh, what kinds of nonsense. And, <laughs> and you got fired for that? Uh, there was a movie, Grindhouse, that was coming out that he had done with Quentin Tarantino. And... Um, I can't remember if he was in the movie or he directed some shitty fake trailer in the movie. And um, they threatened to kind of withhold um, media collateral. Mm. And, um, and that was the end of me. Yeah. Good story. Okay. Good story, by the way. So I think that's so cool. Like not to not to get too off track because I want to talk a bit more about your writing. But like the thing you said about being your own unique voice. It doesn't have to be like the best, but it has to be unique and yourself. Not everybody is trying to be a screenwriter, but if you think about today, like everybody's trying to do your personal brand yeah. on LinkedIn, on Instagram and everything. And there's, there's people who sell freaking courses of like how to write hooks, how to write to grab people's attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the, it boils down to is the same thing you just said of be unique. Yeah. Like there's a thousand and one people like selling shit on Instagram or in your profession, right? In LinkedIn or something. But how can you write and portray yourself so that you're a unique voice? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's never been harder than it is now to be unique because I think at the time it was a lot rarer that you heard people have a voice. Now a lot more people are more comfortable with their voice. And I think there was a shift, like even with, with the book, uh, with Palooka, I think at the time... When the book was written, it wasn't anywhere near as culturally acceptable to confess to that kind of thing. And then quite shortly afterwards, it became very popular to kind of be honest about your shortcomings and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. and the world has just kind of pivoted. And being unique now is is it's really difficult because there are so many. I always tell my students that there are way funnier writers than me on Twitter. 16-year-old girls are way funnier than I am all over the place on, on TikTok or wherever they are. It's just... Um, you know, can you differentiate yourself or, or do you have the discipline to kind of channel that creativity or that funniness into something productive? Even now, like I, some of the students that I get and, and I can see that they have really great voices and they write dialogue really well, but I don't think it's as much of a commodity now as it is, as it was for me. It was really hard for me back then to break in because the industry was, there was so fewer opportunities. Now there are more opportunities, but you're in a bigger ocean of, of talent. And so it's, 
it's not easy, I think. And uh, mm -hmm. I was reading, this, there's a really good paper that was published a few years ago called The Reaction Economy by William Davies. And he was talking about how even just the search for an honest reaction to anything online, an honest feeling is um, it's almost impossible now. So you've got, you've got your unique voice and you're saying it's harder to differentiate yourself. Very true. So you have mentioned Paluka. Yep. Let's get into that because sure. you, you mentioned it was something that people don't talk about at the time, but it has a very, very interesting premise and topic. So tell us more about Paluka. Yeah, Paluka was a book about my lifelong desire, I guess, to be a dad and the uh, complications therein. And so what happened was we found out that I had abnormally low motility of my sperm. And so it was going to be very unlikely that we could get pregnant. And so it's kind of um, the firsthand male account of, of dealing with infertility in the pursuit of, of becoming a father and you know, the various feelings and, and things that you have to do to, to get through that. And it's written in that distinct voice. Yeah, I mean, the whole point, I think, was to bring some levity to the situation. And again, yeah, just, just to be honest. And I think the what I found was that there is pretty significant community of people um, talking about the situation, about infertility and, and the difficulty with um, trying to conceive with modern medicine and, and the difficulty that they have, but the community is very young and not yet, I think, to the point of being able to reflect humorously on the situation. And um, I think that being self-deprecating is, is one of the things that I've always been quite good at. And um, I felt like I could, because I fucked up with like a lot of stuff just by sharing all those things as candidly as possible, it felt like there was an opportunity to kind of um, provide comfort, I guess, and that like all the stuff that you're struggling with, you know, we're all doing that too. And, and before it was published, it was, um, it was taken to a different publisher, which was in Singapore. And, and they came back to me that they wanted to publish, but that I needed to make it more Singaporean. And I declined because uh, the whole point is that it happens to everybody everywhere, not only here. And it's the, the location is not, it's nothing to do with what the book is about. And, right. and, um, and so yeah, I was just trying to approach that subject, both on the male side, which is also less talked about, and, and try to, um, again, you know, like with the, with the art, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's, it's a huge deal, but it's not worth kind of um, torturing yourself about, I guess, mm -hmm. in, especially in silence and, and alone. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So really personal subject matter told in a very hilarious way. I mean, I remember I've not read the whole book, shame on me, but I have heard you do some readings from it and it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, a funny story about how that book came to be is mm. that actually wasn't a book. It was just, we were going through it. And, um, you know, because for me, the only thing that I really know how to do at this point is to, is to write. And so the only way I knew how to, to deal with it was to just write down what was happening and how I was feeling. And, and, I had just been doing that, but I had no notion of being a book because I'd never written a book. In fact, writing a book was very intimidating to me. And so mm. I just, I'd never thought about that. Wow. Yeah, it was really intimidating. Uh, and um, I thought at best, maybe it could be a series of essays or something like that, but I, I didn't know. But then uh, there was one day I was, I was teaching and one of the students was this lady and she clearly knew how to write, but the stuff that she was bringing to class was really, it was just at a distance. It was, it was, it was just very bland. And, and when she spoke in class, she was really interesting and, and really had a sense of humor. And, and I kept trying to push her to be more kind of um, herself, I guess, in, in what she was writing. And, and she, she just had such a resistance to it. And so I ended up sending her a couple of things that eventually became Paluka yeah. to show her like 
This is how personal I can get. I'm not saying you have to go anywhere near this, but you can certainly get a bit more than where you are now. And it turned out that she had been um, really high up in SPH and she had just left her post because she was kind of disillusioned with the way that artists in Singapore were treated. And so she decided that she didn't want to do that anymore and, and she was going to start her own thing, but she was just looking for a writer that she kind of believed in, I guess. And so... So she read the thing and she was the one who said it should be a book. And she was the person who eventually published the book. Wow. So for those that don't know, SPH is, uh, is it Singapore Press Holdings or something? It's a publishing... Yeah, I think you're right. I think and... I was going to say something else, but, <laughs> but I think yours sounds right. <laughs> I said the politically correct one. Okay, so um, did your luck really run out when you were a kid? I mean, you mentioned before you used up all your luck, but that sounds kind of lucky. <laughs> or serendipitous, at least. It's, it's just like weird stuff where I just... Like, I like the feeling of like, oh, I like that girl. And then, you know, I don't know how it was for you where you grew up, but when I was growing up, it was like you, the girl would never tell you she liked you. Like her friend would tell you that, oh, do you know that Rachel likes you? Mm-hmm. I just remember just like a streak of being like, oh, I kind of like Tracy. And then, and then like the next lunchtime, Tracy's friend would be like, you know, Tracy kind of likes you. Do you like Tracy? <laughs> I'm like, holy shit. And I just, I just remember this happening <laughs> for years um, until I was like, I don't know, 19 or something like that. And then, um, so that that was going on for a few years. I was like, oh, I'm so lucky. And then at the time I moved to Malaysia, I was 11. And um, suddenly we had a, like two bathrooms, which was amazing. And then um, we went downstairs and there was a swimming pool because we lived in a condo. And I was like, I've wow. never been to a swimming pool before. And it was just like, holy shit, I am Richie Rich. And then um, I think I was good at sport when I was high school. And if you're good at sport, that makes life really easy. Mm. And so um, I just kind of lived, I guess a fairly charmed existence until I left high school, left my parents' house and, and had to kind of fend for myself. Then reality hit me and then I no longer felt like I was <laughs> I was lucky anymore. So you moved on from skipping into different <laughs> sports. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you because the name Paluka, is that boxing or is it just the 12 rounds? Because there's definitely no, the boxing. No, Paluka is element. an old kind of, it's an old um, boxing term for a journeyman who's, it's like somebody who's like, okay, but they never, they're never going to make it. Mm. But it's, there's definitely like a boxing theme Yeah, to... so at the beginning of every chapter, there's kind of a um, short anecdote about about a boxer going through hardship. And it's that the idea is that um, being a boxer when I was younger, kind of, I guess, because the whole book is about not giving up, basically. That's, that's the kind of theme that runs through the book, is that no matter what happens, we just don't give up on the dream of being a parent. And, um, and the idea is that... There are all these anecdotes of of boxers who went through way more impossible situations than we were going through. And having that knowledge, just being a comfort to this, you know, things can always be worse, you know. Mm. And did the interest in boxing come from your dad? Is that? Yeah, I mean, it probably started that way because my dad is an unhinged maniac, I guess. And and he's just (laughs) like, he's my dad is tiny. My dad is like um, five foot or something like that. And he's one of those angry, small people. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he just he just wants to fight everybody my entire life he just wanted to fight everybody even i wouldn't say in the last few years but certainly like a couple of years ago he was starting fights with people in the supermarket for standing too close to him in the queue or like mm. someone sits too close to me on the train he'll cock his hand it's just it's just he's just a maniac and and he would always get into fights all the time and my brother is also an unhinged maniac mm-hmm. and so if I was also a maniac, we would probably all be dead now or in prison. Yeah. And so somebody has to be the more kind of um, measured one. And so that became me. And then my brother 
my brother. So, so we were always kind of, um, and, and my dad, like my dad will tell you now, if you ask him that he always told us that violence is not the answer. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah, you, you can, you can say all you want, but you, I can see you choosing violence as the answer my entire life. It's, it, you say what you want. So, so definitely the, the initial, um, exposure and interest in fighting was from my dad, but how it happened was my brother was just getting into me fights. And so, um, and in England, most of the time you get in fights from playing football. For some reason, people yeah. who play football always want to fight. Yeah. And he was playing football and he was just getting all these fights. And so um, somebody told him that he should go and learn how to box so they could actually like know what he was doing. And he did. And the, the, reason, the reason why I got into boxing was because I just wanted to be able to help. And I think just having no friends, it just made me feel like I could kind of... Um, I've always felt like if I wanted to learn something, I could learn something on my own because I never had anybody to help me, I, you know, and I've just always had that notion. So when he said he was going to learn how to box at the time, I wasn't around and I wanted to be able to help. And so I decided myself that I would also learn how to box. And then once I learned then I could also help him. And then that, that was how I got in because of my brother. Briefly, you were a pro boxer. Like, how did that all happen? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I was training and, and then um, I stopped riding for a while because my mom passed away and I just like I, I didn't know what I wanted to do and and I'd followed this girl to Malaysia <laughs> it's just a terrible decision um well I can't say that because everything led me to where I am now but at mm -hmm. the time just a, just a horrible decision in isolation and I was just in Malaysia I didn't know what to do and um this is pretty honestly probably pretty depressed at the time and just found my way back to boxing I guess and um I met this guy who was uh he had a belt in Malaysia and, and I became his, his main training partner. I was a bit smaller than him. They just asked me if I wanted to fight. And then I just got on the cards and just started fighting for a while. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I only stopped actually because I met my wife and, and she hated it. And she told me that I had to quit. And well, okay. It was partly that, but also it was like my brother was way better than me. He wanted me to coach him. So he, he was going to move to Malaysia so that I could coach him and, and, and he was going to pursue this career. And so I stopped so that my wife would keep going out with me and so that I could coach my brother. And that was why I stopped. And then, and then that I, I went back to writing, I guess. Yeah. So, so that's what precipitated your return to writing? Mm, yeah. You felt... I have nothing else to do. Time. I have no skills. I have no, <laughs> I have no skills. Writing and boxing. Writing and boxing. Yeah, that's and it. And skipping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, was that around the time... Um, because one of the projects you worked on that I wanted to ask you about was Jarum Halus. Mm. Which I understand, I mean, you can obviously explain it a bit more, but I understand is like a remake of Othello, yes. but set in a Malaysian context. Yes. And which won some awards. Yeah. So tell us about your experience with that. <laughs> okay. The experience was really exciting at the time. I was pretty young. I think I, I must have been in my early 20s, I guess. And yeah, it was, it was a really cool opportunity for me to write something about where I was from or where I'd grown up. Actually, it was really cool for me because my dad, I think, one of the probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me in, in the larger scale of my life and, and determining who I became is that the reason why my dad got the job to that brought us to Malaysia was that he worked as a petrol pump attendant. That's when we were poor before. And um Petronas in, in Malaysia, they decided they were gonna start their own kind of chain of, of petrol stations, but they didn't know how to do it. So they were gonna hire someone from their affiliate in England to go and and teach them how to do that. And so they approached my dad's boss's boss and he heard about it. My dad's boss's boss ended up declining the job. And so my dad took it upon himself to go and really campaign for this position. Obviously they declined because he was just a petrol pump guy, but he just kept going. 
over and over again and, and fighting for this position. And, and eventually he, he ended up getting it. And that, that changed our lives. That, that brought us to Malaysia. Now suddenly we had some money and um, it's really, really cool. The reason why I say it's probably the worst thing that ever happened to me in a sense is that before that, I was an awesome student. I was at this school called Queen Elizabeth High School, which was the, the top secondary school in England. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have it anymore, but it, it, in England, there used to be um, public schools, private schools, and grammar schools. Uh, mm-hmm. Public schools were um, where everybody went to comprehensives. There were private schools where you paid, and grammar schools where there were only a few of them, and you had to score up a 95% in this thing called the 11 plus, which was a, an academic exam to get in. And so I did that and I, I got into the school and I was doing well at this school. Then my dad does that. He gets the job and we move. And what I believe happened, I think my dad will argue, but what I believe happened was that what I learned from that is that my dad's biochemistry degree was absolutely worthless. The thing that actually changed his life was his ability to grind somebody out and convince them of a story, which is that he yeah. is the right man for the job, not the other person, me. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that that changed the way that I, I saw the world, where it made me think that my education is nowhere near as important as my ability to convince somebody of a notion. And um, didn't even care about my education after that. All I cared about was <laughs> sport, which made me popular, yep. and girls that the popularity <laughs> brought. That was all I cared about. <laughs> but the, the reason why that was cool for Jarm House was because... Um, the reason why I got that job is because I was from Malaysia. And so um, it was like a, a mirroring in a way of like, I got to do the same thing that my dad did. I didn't really petition as hard as he did, but mm-hmm. I got it for the same reason. I got to do kind of the same thing that he did. So that was really cool. It was a, an important lesson for me, I think. It was like, like uh, there's a line in Lolita, Nabokov writes, he says, um, I, I had fallen in love with Lolita forever, but I knew she would not forever be Lolita. And that was how I felt about writing where it was never always going to be as pure as I thought it was going to be. Mm. And so um, I still love the writing, but it was no longer this pure thing. It was now an industry thing. And my stuff was being rewritten and, and parts of the voiceover was being added that I didn't write. And, and I was having to write around scenes that the director wanted that I didn't necessarily feel like fit into the script. And it was difficult for me at the time, but maybe you could say it was only difficult for me because I was too idealistic at the time. Looking back, it wasn't awesome, but it happened, you know. And so at the time, it, it kind of sucked, but it was a necessary education for me. And I'm, and I'm glad it came as early as it did, really, you know. And, 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 you know, maybe I'm jaded now, but I think you'd be very lucky if you never have to go through a situation like that. It's just how the industry works. And, and at least I was getting hired, you know. So, mm-hmm. so it, was, it was fine. It, it was okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a, uh, a telling fine. Okay. <laughs> So is that how the industry works, though? I mean, did you... Okay, so my question is, did you just get used to that? Or did you find that not all productions have to be that way? So I'm choosing not to be involved with those type of productions. I, I think it's difficult for me to say one way or the other. I can only say my my attitude, which is that there is stuff that's for me and there's stuff that's for money. And so right. the stuff that's for me, I'll fight to the death over what I want it to be, especially in terms of how my family are shown to be. That's really all that matters to me, to be honest, is like, does it reflect poorly on my family? Does it reflect poorly on me? It doesn't really bother me, but it does in the sense of like, and not for any selfish reasons, but I do want my kids to have a positive impression of their dad, you know? So, um, (laughs) so, So in that regard, yeah. But when it's just a project that's for money, I will tell you what I think. And if you really don't want me to do that, if you really want me to do the stupid thing, then I'll just do the stupid thing. Before the 
pandemic, I had sold a script and uh, it died because of COVID. But but just recently it was it was reoptioned and they're going to try and get it going again. And um, on that project, I had written this character who um, was just a, a minor character. But then they had found out that somebody with a name had wanted to play the role. And so they asked me if I could make the role bigger, which to me didn't make any sense. But fine. So I did that. And then I'd given them a backstory where they had this elderly dad who was sick or whatever it was. And then they had come back and said, yeah, you know, sick old people is kind of a bummer on set. Could we get like maybe like a hot younger woman or something? Can, can you have a daughter? <laughs> and so I'm just like, all right, man, whatever. This is just, this is money. And so yeah. I just do that shit and it doesn't really bother me anymore. So I think that's the approach. It's like, if it's something that I really, like with trouble, um, that had to be all my decisions. Not not to say like I didn't listen to people's opinions. I definitely rewrote stuff based on some people had thoughts and, and, and I would consider what they had. And um, ultimately I make the final decision. But if it's if it's just work, then you pay for my counsel. If you don't want the counsel, then I'll just do what you want. Right, right. So is that something that most writers or most creatives have to do is kind of the stuff for money versus the stuff that's your own personal passion? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I say I, I think it's hard for me to be the one to say I think I think maybe the reality might be that I'm lucky that I get to do any of the stuff for me. You know, mm. I think it's hard to say. I think um, it's certainly, I'm sure, easier to make a career of just doing the money stuff and, and not really caring. It's just a matter of are you able to be okay with that? And and I think like any advice for young writers would be that you probably should be. You know, I think the early days of Netflix kind of um, proved that point where Netflix, when they first started and they decided they were going to go into film, they were an unknown commodity as a film studio at the time, and, and they didn't have theatrical re- release. All the films would go straight to television, which is not really sexy for a big-time director. So the only way that they could attract the, the film directors or the legitimate directors was to offer them kind of a blank checkbook and, and total creative control. And so what happened was directors would go there with these passion projects that they wanted to make, but that they'd never been able to get made because the studio had excessive notes or didn't like the script or whatever, and they made them, and they all sucked. Mm. stuff like bright and um and all these unsuccessful movies and and, and it, in a way to me at least proved the point that when writers complain that studios um interfere too much with their notes mm. maybe not always the case you know that the, there's i'm sure there's a balance there and it's the hardest thing in the world is to edit yourself going back to what we said at the start you know when the thing that you're working on yourself your own story it's very easy to romanticize and think that it's really great and really important so yeah <laughs> Did we talk about that? Or were we just alluding? <laughs> I know that's, uh, I guess that's the first, one of the first things I learned when I was trying to write something is that like, nobody is as interested in your story as you are. Yeah. And so you really have to find that kind of edit yourself down and find what will resonate with people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, okay. Very cool. So when you talked about your, your personal stuff and how your family is portrayed, obviously some of the stuff you're writing is, is very personal in nature. It's kind of like, it's about stuff you're going through, obviously, with your book and everything. What type of things do you look forward to doing next? I meant you mentioned a project that you're not talking about, but other personal stuff. Like, what else do you feel needs to be told? I push back on that terminology a little bit. The mm-hmm. terms needs to be told, not because I think it's wrong, but because I personally don't like to get into that state of mind. Because I feel like if I feel like a story needs to be told then entitlement is going to seep in where the, where I, I start to feel resentful of anybody who doesn't get it. Uh, if they don't want to support it, mm. then it makes me feel like 
it's going to make me angry because the story needs to be told and you don't want to let me. What's wrong with you? This is a problem. And I don't want to feel that kind of entitlement. I feel like if you have that sense of entitlement, it's going to dull the writing because I'm, I'm going to focus less on how to convince you or how to tell you a good story. I'm going to coast on the notion that the story needs to be told. Mm. So I would push back on that a little bit and, and say that there are just stories that I want to tell, I guess. And I don't know, actually, at, at the moment. There is this other project that I just recently started working on, which I'm really excited about, but but it's going to be... The play was the first step, so this is a film, and it's going to be a question of, um, you know, can we raise the funding? And and so we'll see, we'll see where that goes, because I, I want to direct again, and um, yeah, I'm not sure. But I definitely want to tell Singaporean stories. I want to tell Singaporean stories that can travel beyond Singapore mm. and, and, and not make fun of Singapore as a source of comedy. There's, that was something that I really worked really hard to not do on Trouble, which, is, which was a comedy set in Singapore, trying not to use Singapore as a butt of the humor, um, try to not defer to caricature, try to write humor that could travel beyond Singapore. And so um, that is something, because now, like I live in Singapore, I have a PR, my kids are Singaporean, my wife's Singaporean. As far as I'm concerned, I, I would love to be Singaporean if these guys would have me, but it's not as easy as, as that. And, and But we'll probably be here forever. And so raising or at least helping, trying to help to elevate or at least um, just try to help what the Singaporean industry is, is, is pretty important to me and, and, and telling Singapore stories in a way that just kind of opens the mind of, of people who are conceiving of these stories and and. Because like with Trouble, it was really important that we told a story that was had a very heavy topic, which is mental health and depression, but not present it in a way that was heavy, not um, make you feel like shit after the play because right. somebody close to you might be depressed and you haven't thought about it. It was to show that we can we can address these topics that are heavy, but you can also have a good time. And because I don't want to scare people away from theater as well, you know, I think it's important that we kind of. Um, not allow this laceration where people are like, if I want to have a good time, I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to watch a movie. If I want to torture myself for an hour and fucking like have to think about some shit, then I'm going to go to the theater. I don't, I don't want it to be like that. So, right. um, so yeah. So Singaporean stories, um, stories about heavy or more kind of um, serious topics, but, but hopefully presented with some levity. I think mm. that, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, your kids. I mean, they're they're young. They're too way too young to be reading your stuff. Yeah. At the moment, you said you want them to be proud of you. I think you mentioned and what their dad has done. What do you think they will think when they read your stuff eventually when they grow up? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it depends. I think you know my my wife and I are, are so different, and um, if they're like me, then they'll think what I wrote was cool. If they're like my <laughs> wife, they'll think. <laughs> this is needlessly vulgar and um, and, and and revealing of our, our personal lives. So I, I want them to be proud of me in the sense that all I really want is for them to have a healthy expectation for their own lives. And so a part of that life is their partner. And so I want them to have a positive impression of what a partner should be in their lives. And so not somebody who didn't do anything, somebody who was working hard at, at a craft and trying to to help people and so it's more it's not i want them to think i was a great writer it's more i want them to think that i was doing something positive and so that then when they go out to find a partner hopefully they, they find they look for the same thing so finally james what would the world look like if every artist followed your advice 
the the first question that you asked about about um why I think it was important to to write that post or say mm. those things. I think I, I forgot to mention something that which is that I think one of the things that's not maybe treated with as much respect as I think as it should be is that when you're in a position of let's say power, which you are as a director on a show uh, or a teacher or maybe even a producer, I'm not sure, but there's an amount of responsibility that comes with that. I think that it makes you a patron or uh, of the arts, you know, and it's, it's your responsibility to grow that interest and, and passion for the arts rather than kind of dull it by harassing or like overworking people and, and taking advantage of them. And, and that, that's why I think it's an important, an important thing to consider because you have the responsibility of encouraging people to make more art or making them quit and not ever want to make art again because the, the experience was so arduous. And so I think um, you could make the argument that, that art would be less spectacular if we remove Stanley Kubrick and, you know, Roman Polanski and other directors who ran a much more um, authoritarian set. But I think you could counter by saying there'll be more people making art because there would be less people dissuaded from the process by, by terrible experiences on set. And I think that's something that's, that's worthwhile too. And just to urge people, I guess, to take that responsibility seriously. And, and like e equally that the people in the audience, that might be their first and only show that they come to see and to take that responsibility seriously. So um, yeah, that was, that was the only other thing that I was gonna say. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been a useful investment of your time. If you feel inspired by this episode, please rate it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Now go out there and seize those moments.